Welcome to The Brew Files, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, well, last year in episode 8, we sat down to talk with Peter Simons, author of Bronzed Brews, an in-depth exploration of the beers of the early Australian colonial period. Well, Peter said he had even more material to cover, and what do you know? Another book has appeared, Six O'Clock Brews. So let's find out what the Six O'Clock Swill is, and just how you make beers suited for it. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Well, once again on the Brew Files, it's time for us to you know go talk some styles. And just about a year ago, we had uh, Peter Simons on on the program to talk through his first book, Bronzed Brews. And uh, Peter is now back with a brand new book. Peter, say hello to the audience. Why don't you introduce the book? Hello, audience. Um, I must say thank you to many of you who, who bought Bronzed Brews. I'm pleased to say about a month ago, I published uh, the sequel, uh, Six O'Clock Brews, as an extension and amplification of uh, what I found from Bronze Brews, and uh, I think we're going to explore a few um, interesting uh, snippets from the book over the next little while. So now for the audience you know, who are not Australian, can you explain the whole Six O'Clock Swill? Ah, right, okay. So let's, let's roll back to... World War One, just like in the in the US, uh, there were a lot of um, prohibitionists, uh, 
loosely called temperance societies here, and they really did step up their lobbying during World War One as being uh, that the, the demon drink uh, was hampering the war effort, and it was not helped by a, uh, a fairly uh, substantial riot by uh, some of the armed forces uh, who weren't allowed to come to Sydney for a, a few beers. That generated a lot of heat, if you like, in the uh, political scene. So in New South Wales, they held a referendum in 1916 about early closing. And the whole, the whole idea was that reducing the amount of time that people had to drink would lead to a more temperate society. Why do I have a feeling that failed? Yeah, well, I was, I was building up to it gradually. So most, most people in the public bars would get off work at 5 o'clock. And most states were open until about 10 in the evening. In the referendum result in New South Wales was to have closing at 6 p.m., which meant you had one whole hour to drink as much as you possibly could uh, before the pub shut. So the whole 6 o'clock swill developed as being a, a drink-a-thon, uh, very messy pubs designed with tiles on the wall so they could be hosed down afterwards. Now, politicians are the same the world over. They had said that the early closing would be a temporary measure and would be withdrawn within six months of the uh, of the war, you know, closing, if you like, or, or peace. That's the word I was looking for. But they reneged on that. They didn't actually uh, reinstate the pre-war opening hours until 1955. Well, they didn't say which war. Ah, uh, well, it was the Great War, the war to end all wars, so I, I suppose they could have wriggled a bit there. So generations of um, drinkers would have known nothing else but closing at 6 o'clock in the evening. Uh, the other states either did um, uh, referenda or followed roughly in line with, with what had happened in New South Wales. So the whole of Australia had some form of restricted uh, drinking hours, but not like the UK, where they not only restricted opening hours, they reduced uh, the gravity of beers and the volume of the beers being produced. So those those other factors didn't apply in Australia. Well, I'm always curious to see, you know, from an American point of view, how everybody did their sort of different prohibition things that were going on during that period of time you know belgium getting rid of spirits you know australia with the the, the six o'clock closing hours britain reducing gravity it's just very interesting that you know the u.s decided to be the ones to go you know what nothing you guys get nothing anymore oh, yeah but that has been uh, i watched the um the pbs program on prohibition that was a few years ago uh, the prohibitionists had, had educated the uh the school children of the 1880s to uh, be against the idea of drink. And those were of an age that when it came to vote for it, prohibition that is, um, they seemed to have um, held sway. So they, they played a long game. Sometimes you have to uh, for any sort of political movement or any sort of change. Now, let me ask. So you've got this one hour window. You know, where everybody was in the in the pub that they could they could drink. What sort of impact did that have on the beers that were being brewed and were available to the public? Was there an impact? I think we have to uh, discriminate between uh, the draft beers, uh, 
bar or bottle bar. Yeah. And the more exclusive areas of the pub, other than the front bar. So the people in the front bar were, were drinking triple X, uh, what we would buy call old, pretty straightforward beer. May have had some relationship originally to English mild of the same period, but slightly different. Very much a draft beer, brewed one week, drunk the next. That seems a perfectly reasonable thing to, to be drinking. But yeah, so I guess different classes of beer. So really the idea was, you know, something that could could be get down fast because you didn't have that long to drink it. I, I don't think it really mattered what it was as long as it had um, some alcoholic content. Uh, uh, I suppose alco pops would be uh, a modern equivalent. Let's leave the alco pops out. <laughs> I think seriously, the from looking at, at the way the beers were brewed, they they wouldn't have been overly anything. They would have had enough meat and enough hops, but they weren't particularly happy. Uh, this is the draft beer. Uh, they weren't. Um, they wouldn't have been. I think from the hopping schedules that I've seen, uh, very aromatic. Uh, so they've been pretty easy drinking. Uh, typically around four four and a half percent ABV. Yeah, your, your your standard drinker, get it down, get it fast, uh, and don't challenge the the palate too much to uh, make that next beer too hard. Like say on like an IPA. Well, a good a good cropping IPA. It depends on your definition of IPA, of course, and that's another story. But, um, uh, you mean current IPA definition? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the sort of West Coast American IPA that's all hops right in your teeth. Well, a pliny is, is drinkable for at least um, four. Uh, in the cropping style, and then possibly that's enough. It's never enough. Bronze brews have felt, felt like to me you were doing a lot of exploration of what uh, tooths and tui brewing, and really a lot of the early early history of Australian brewing. Uh, six o'clock. I mean, I feel like we're in the more modern era. You know, still World War One period and above, but it, it, a little bit more modern focus and some of the transitions happening to Australian brewing during that period of time sort of come across that way, it, it gets rather strange when, when you regard uh, something as being relatively modern uh, from the 1970s and the 1980s, but when you've dealt for so long, two centuries ago, it does seem rather modern compared to all the rest. And quite honestly, from about the 80s and 90s, the types of beers available in Australia before the modern uh, microbrewery uh, resurgence was was strictly limited. So, if you like, the the period of most of the 20th century is possibly more interesting to see how things develop than than more modern stuff. It does come down to the uh, the access to the material that sort of guides you in, in what you can look at. And I was lucky enough to get more material that went with the things I had incomplete from bronze brews to to really put together a book that uh, is an extension of where of what I wrote for Bonfrey. Well, I was going to say in terms of sources, I felt like one of the big wins for you in this book was getting access into Cooper's. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, little story with that one. I went to ANHC 5, which is the Australian version of NHC, uh, in Adelaide in October last year. Uh, Dr. Tim Cooper, managing director, head brewer, of Cooper's uh, gave a talk. You know what it's like after a talk. There's always a couple of people that go up and want to talk to the speaker. Well, I was too far back in the 
room, so I didn't get first go, but I did wait patiently, uh, and I gave him a copy of Bronze Groove and asked very nicely if I could see his archive. So that was October. Uh, he sent me a copy of their uh, history, Jolly Good Ale and Old. Long story short, uh, end of January this year, uh, I spent three days at Cooper's Brewery at Regency Park. Uh, they gave me an office, over 100 years plus of archives. Lovely archives. Archives not full of mould. Most unusual. <laughs> I recall when the last time we talked, you you made mention that the usually a brewery's archives are not the most inviting of places or most well-kept. Uh, these were well-indexed, well-kept, and really great hospitality. Uh, just let me loose um, for three days and had a chat with him at the end about my initial impressions because my modus operandi is to photograph everything in sight and then analyze it later. It's, it's what I found to be the, uh, the most efficient way of doing it. But as you do, if you flick the pages, you do see things. Uh, had a chat with, with him uh, afterwards and there are a couple of um, people's beers in the book uh, that would be classed today as imperial, uh, an imperial pale ale, uh, imperial stout, uh, which were brewed around the early 20th century, uh, which they were surprised about because they really don't have uh, time or the, um, what's the way I should describe it? Dedication and persistence, or just straight lunacy, uh, to delve through in detail brewing uh, production logs uh, and picking things out. So, uh, really appreciative. Um, Dr. Tim uh, wrote the foreword for me. Uh, he also commented on the book, which was uh, very good of him. And, um, yeah. We, we hope to do something in terms of an official launch at some stage, but they're just about uh, to commission their new maltings. They've built a brand new malting facility uh, in the same precinct uh, as the brewery. So he's a bit preoccupied with that at the moment, I think. So hopefully next year we'll be able to do something. And Cooper's, of course, they're one of the few breweries I can think of that still does malting and that they they have such a tight connection to the homebrewing world in general, because I mean, I mean, we can find Cooper's malt extract here. You know, I mean, for, and for the longest time, that was like one of the highest quality things that you could get on the market if you were a homebrewer. Well, corporate history is, um, if, if you like, uh, really getting into because uh, uh, it's a family family run private company, which is most unusual these days. Uh, and they, they've survived uh, various eras. Uh, for a long time, uh, the sparkling ale wasn't really their, their major product. It was the best extra stout that was their uh, product that they sold the most on. Then they moved and expanded uh, the brewery, uh, and they got into um, making more extracts. And that saved them for a period of time when the industry went through uh, a bit of a, uh, a flat period. All these things come together in, in, their, in their corporate history, uh, along with uh, fending off a, 
a takeover by, uh, I think it was Lion Nathan at the time. It makes for fascinating reading the, the way, and this is probably quite uh, contemporary, uh, the way smaller breweries are uh, acquired by larger breweries. That, that never happens. Not, not these days. <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's happened. I know it happens in, in the US and it's happening here uh, that uh, CUB, aka uh, ABV InBev, have been purchasing on a, on a regular basis uh, uh, well-regarded, inverted commas, craft brewers. The beer's okay, the beer's okay. Um, I don't really mind who's brewing it. Well, and I was going to say, because I mean, you guys have had a lot of history of like these various breweries merging and turning into other things. And you cover some of that. Some of the stuff I thought was interesting in reading the book was that, I mean, you start off obviously having to explain how you, how you dig this stuff out of these logs. Cause again, to the point you're not reading I mean, the exception of Cooper's having their nice little corporate history. When you're looking at the history of their beers, you're actually just digging into brewing logs. Cause nobody sat down to say, Oh, this is the history of this particular beer. And this is how it's changed. You actually literally have to pull it out of the day-to-day notes and decipher what those notes meant and how that actually becomes a beer, right? Yeah, you, uh, in, in very few instances do you actually get the recipe. What you can get across a period of time are the production logs, and I take a snapshot of the production logs, and I usually look for when there's a shift in, in gravity or ingredients, which would tend to indicate some externality, something has happened. Once I can see those shifts, over time, and that's where having a, a hundred years plus is really useful. You, you can you can see the shifts. You can then have a look at um, advertising on the uh, newspaper archive here in Australia called Trove. You can try and understand the, the political situation at the time. Was it a tax issue? Was it that there was a recession or something? There's usually some externality that that's caused some change to the beer. Or, or, uh, or there's been some technological change, and some of the technological changes uh, related to well, being aware of other brewing practices or the plants being changed. Then you have to try and put that all together because it's it's all very well having a list of ingredients and mass temperatures, but you actually need to know about the process. That's one of the pieces that you dig into in the book. Is it, I'm trying to remember is it, uh, the Cascade Brewery. You walk through a couple of changes in plant that they did and how that changed the process and how they started with infusion and then eventually how everybody was doing decoctions as as time was rolling on and then how that finally gets us into a place where the brewing process is very modern in terms of the same sort of practices that we see today. Cascade um, has been a challenge because I, I only found information in the Bogues archives and that's Launceston in Tasmania whereas uh, Cascade is in Hobart the other end of the, of the island um, but they were both um, uh, both owned by the same company, Tasmanian Breweries in were sort of between the wars and originally they were going to uh, put a, a brand new process called the uh, Nathan process which came from uh, Switzerland as a brand new plant uh, into uh, Launceston at Bogue and I read the uh, director's minutes and for whatever reason there seems to have been something going on they didn't install it uh, at Bogue's which would have been a much easier site they installed it at Cascade which cost 
uh, a lot of money because they basically had to knock down the building. So a very quick overview of the Nathan process, as, as you mentioned, it's it's much more akin to uh, a modern brewing process. The, the hot side, they've moved from a traditional infusion mashing system and they've moved it to a decoction system. Uh, it was the cold side that was uh, really the, the patents held by Nathan uh, where they would they would actually force out all the trube uh, post-boil and keep it in a, a much more hydrogen this is their marketing, a much more hygienic process. And they introduced um, uh, cylindro-conical fermenters, which in the 1920s was way ahead of its time. And these were aluminium or aluminium for your listeners. And this whole closed fermentation process, uh, they were blowing the captured CO2 from the primary fermentation, they were harvesting that, and then they were rapidly aging the beer by, by blowing that CO2 back through uh, the green beer, and its claim to fame was instead of having to lager for six weeks or months, uh, your, your process was all over and done with in, in a few weeks. There, was, there were several of these breweries put in in Australia. The one that lasted the longest uh, was in uh, South Australia, uh, and eventually you know, got to the end of its life cycle and was um, replaced by post World War II by a German lager plant. Well, and what was interesting to me was reading the Nathan process with a few tweaks here and there. I mean, you could walk a—I mean, it felt like you could walk a Nathan brewer into a modern plant and the process wouldn't feel all that different. And uh, like, I think, yeah, the two high points are cylindroconical vessels and the fact that now everything's closed fermentation, closed to air. I remember the part of the ads that, that you're, that you have in the book talk about that, that idea that it's untouched by air after the brewing process to, to, you know, keep it fresh and keep it safe. And it's like, wow, that's exactly what everybody does nowadays. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, the more I look into the old stuff, uh, the more I think that there's nothing new on this earth. See, and what's funny to me is that the Nathan fermenter, I mean, that's the first thing I've, I'd read about with the, the Nathan process because I think that's obviously the, the biggest thing that's stayed with us. And, I mean, the cone shape's a little different. It's at a different angle because people change that over time for settling ratios or something. But I do remember... For whatever reason, years ago when I first learned about the Nathan fermenter, I thought it was an Australian thing. And now, of course, realizing, oh, wait, no, this was used elsewhere. It's just somehow I had the, the association in my mind that the Nathan process and the Nathan fermenter were from Australia. No, it was um, uh, the Swiss and uh, the brochures that I've seen in the archives. Uh, there were numerous plants installed after Prohibition, so that would have been the uh, 30s in the US. So uh, there was there was one one in the UK uh, in Manchester somewhere. It was also in the commercial files. It deals with the uh, terms and conditions of using this process, and basically uh, the brewery was held captive under these terms and conditions that they couldn't change the process. 
uh, without uh, referral back to Switzerland. Uh, they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. So you can sort of see why the CCVs didn't quite escape from these particular breweries because of their restrictive uh, legal arrangements and wouldn't have been something that would have got out into the broader industry, perhaps. This is true, yeah, and it was all like licenses and fees and here you go, here's your annual fee over to Switzerland. But no, I mean, to me, I thought it was interesting just to see that there, there was that period of time when you just see the transition into something that like becomes recognizably modern and starts to step away from uh, older traditions. The other thing I was also saying a lot of like digging through the book was I'm trying to think the, the right way to put this, but there's a fair amount in some of the history and the advertisements and everything else that you have, even talking about the ingredients about like, Hey, you know, stuff from the uh, colonial side of the house is just as good as the stuff that comes in from England. And it feels like a lot of that colors, that early modern transition of Australian brewing, where suddenly everybody's like, Hey, hey, no, no, you got to buy the colonial product. I think it helps uh, having a very protectionist government and the duty arrangements. Um, So if you look at the, the whole thing, uh, the marketing, marketing again is not new, and the imported Guinness and Bass and other beers, uh, they were an expensive product, they, they had to differentiate in, in some way. Uh, with the locals, then, uh, during World War One, when uh, shipping was disrupted, they were saved, equal to best imported, i.e. Guinness, etc. So they really did work hard at substitution of, um, of imported products. Uh, some products took a while to come through. Uh, I did find some in, uh, more modern international type beers uh, from the 1960s and 70s where more uh, global styles were being introduced. But pretty much um, the Australian industry had plant equipment uh, competence uh, to brew anything that they wanted to brew. It's just that most of what they were brewing was um, ordinary or triple X uh, to be consumed um, in that one hour between five and six o'clock. And on the last episode that we had, you when we were talking about bronze brews, we covered old pretty extensively because I think that was one of the main focuses of of that first book. Now, when we get into when we get into the latter half, so the fir- first half of uh, six o'clock, you know, you're covering ingredients and some history and process changes, all the stuff that's happening around the Australian brewing industry at that time. The latter half of the book is all you know focused on styles and actually digging into. I th- I'm trying to remember what fifty uh, some odd recipes for different Australian beers to make. It's more recipe focused book, and there's lesser emphasis on on process and ingredients, although I did strike a, a rich vein of uh, information about hops, and I felt uh, it would be worthwhile capturing that, especially how hops uh, had changed from whole hops and the types uh, to uh, pellets, uh, and I bumped into uh, hop extract and kettle extract and all of those things are, are quite pertinent to when you're trying to do a recreation recipe in the period of the 60s, 70s, and 80s because it, it affects the, the, the 
swing ratio in, in the recreation. I picked up some of that in uh, Western Australia in the archives of Swan. So I've, I've correlated about three different archives and then went back and looked at my original harvesting of information for bronze swing, and that's resulted in quite an extensive discussion about hops uh, and types of hops because I thought that was interesting, so I thought mm, perhaps others might find it interesting as well. The hop extract piece was was really interesting to me. Uh, obviously, I think by the time you're where you're at in history here, we're seeing a lot less about substitutions and things that couldn't be it couldn't be imported or at least grown. And it sounded more like there was more and more industry around actually doing growing and all the, the hop regions and, and whatnot finally catching up. And, but I also saw there was some fun stuff in there. Uh, oh, yeah, that you had uh, malted corn as an ingredient. Now it makes me want to go figure out if I can find malted corn to play with. Yeah, the, uh, one of the recipes that I, I found in the second round uh, talked a lot about grit. So... Grits, as I understand it, can be uh, of many different cereals, uh, and I tried to work through the likelihood of what sort of grits uh, these might be. Uh, I think on the balance of probability, they would have been maize, corn, although they might just have been barley as well. don't think they were rice, but possibly they might have been. Uh, and, and there was a period pre-World War One, where the use of raw grain was very popular. And, and what I can see over time is that the brewing industry in Australia picked up on trends from overseas. And if, if something was being used somewhere, they probably gave it a try. So in this period, um, slightly thereafter, we start seeing syrup, uh, a glucose derived from corn, and a bit later on you start seeing uh, diastatic uh, milk extract, which when used in the uh, in the mash tun uh, gave an improvement in efficiency. So if your your malt was a bit poor, putting um, uh, enzymes in the mash uh, improved the efficiency. And and these are things that I've seen in UK logs as well. So they, they pretty much picked up. Uh, and I can see this from the ingredients in the keeper's log. Um, it's then trying to pull all those threads together to make a, a bit of a view of, of what era and what sort of things were being used. Right. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the brewing industry, at least in modern times, has become sort of a global information share. Uh, once again, going back to what you were saying, that there's nothing new under the sun. The amount of um, uh, information in the files that I've seen of a brewery in Western Australia hosting a brewer from the eastern states of Australia. This seems to have been a fairly general thing. Unfortunately, some of the correspondence files are, are one-sided. You only get to see the response. You don't necessarily get to see the question, or vice versa. So there's a bit of bit of interpretation, but the general feeling I get is that the, uh, the brewers uh, until the 50s and 60s were very secure in their own state markets and they were quite happy to share and swap hops between them uh, and other information and quite often toured each other's breweries. So they weren't actually competitive because of the geographical distances. 
Yeah, so yeah, you can help it can help everybody out because they're not going to cut into your market. So hey, that works. And nowadays, everybody just shares anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, there could have been elements of that as well. Like like we talked about earlier in the episode, you spent all of uh, that magical two days in Cooper's archive, and I figured before we leave the uh, leave the program and the book behind. It would make some sense that we talk about, you know, you mentioned Cooper's sparkling ale earlier and, and discovering some new things. So what can you tell us that uh, that you discovered in Cooper's archives? What can you tell us about sparkling ale or any of the other styles that you cover in the book? Well, sparkling ale is very iconic here. It's, um, Cooper's Red is a beer that uh, in the 70s, uh, it was basically a go-to beer if you uh, if you went in the field pub and they didn't have anything that you liked and they had Cooper's, then Cooper's Red was uh, the beer of choice. What I've what I've seen by this um, long period described in the archives is that change was slow. They were very keen to. Ensure that the sparkling ale uh, was produced in the traditional fashion using puncheons. Uh, uh, they didn't change the ingredients very often. But there was an overall trend from uh, around the turn of the uh, 19th, 20th century where the gravities gradually reduced to more usual gravity so we're down from sort of a 10, 10 this is just ish but so 1070 ish we're heading down to 1065 1050 as OGs over time the alcoholic content uh, came down similarly and then it pretty much is the, the bulk of the 20th century and today it's it's around the 5.8 so dear uh, the gravity is it's changed and gone down further, but so is the final gravity. So you, you, you have today perhaps a, an ale that is quite dry and, and, and very profitable uh, despite its alcoholic percentage. So the things I've seen along the way with sparkling ale, please bear in mind that whilst today quite a ringwood as a hop is, is associated with sparkling ale, that only was the case from the 70s, 1970s. Prior to that, uh, one of the things I picked up on was that uh, they quite often use either sats dried, Czech sats, or U.S. sats uh, in combination with, with a, a Tasmanian Golding's derivative. So today, uh, some of the beers, uh, I think I've got uh, the 1927 Sparkling Ale in there, you could substitute in that recipe uh, some sats and EKGs, and I quite like that combination. Now, that's a combination that I wouldn't have chosen to do by myself, but it does produce a, a different type of um, flavor than uh, the more modern pride of Ringwood. So the sparkling ale hadn't changed a great deal when, when the next generation of Coopers took over post- World War II, Maxwell Cooper went and did reference brews in 1954 back 
1927, which is why I picked 1927. They actually recreated the booth. I, I think what he was trying to do was calibrate, have the, have the recipe like, style drifted uh, over time. And, and he'd been trained in the UK, uh, I think it was the uh, Brewing School, University of Birmingham, or something like that. So he was applying analytic processes and, and other things as the next generation of, of keepers through the brewery. So I, I, I thought that was, that was really interesting to see that he would take the time and trouble to recalibrate, if you like, uh, the sparkling ale. Well, I always tell people that the triangle test is a wonderful tool, right? You know, for sensory development, be able to tell whether or not a change that you make is actually going to be impactful, right? And so a lot of breweries use that to sort of figure out how to how to change the beer that they're doing without changing the profile that people will notice. And But the problem is people always forget that as you stack those changes together, you drift further and further from your reference mark. And so, yeah, the fact that they were going back to just go and double check and say, wait, does this still taste right? That is pretty good. That's what, um, that's probably a generation and a half, which I thought was, uh, I, I don't know whether people actually would choose to do that because I, I think you would get drift over time, whether that be through uh, subtle process changes or, or ingredients that have, you know, nearly all the ingredients are seasonal and you, you would always have variation there. I think it speaks to good management to actually decide that that, that was a, a proper course of action. Were there, were there any other changes that you noticed about uh, the sparkling ales from the Cooper's Archives or even from other breweries? Because, I mean, Cooper's wasn't the only one making a sparkling ale, right? Cooper's is the only survivor making a in the agglomeration of uh, breweries in um, the early 20th century. Nearly all the other sparkling ales in the Adelaide area disappeared. And Westerville uh, had one of the nascent plants, so their sparkling ale disappeared to become. I haven't uh, accessed their archive yet, even though I know that it's there. I haven't been able to get into it, so that may one day tell a tale. We'll see. But sparkling ale was used as a, a marketing term late. Uh, 1800s, you'll see sparkling ale. I did a newspaper search on the term. Everybody had a sparkling ale. It was probably their pale ale. But you, if everybody else has got a sparkling ale, well, you should have a sparkling ale. The UK also uh, had sparkling ale, part of their marketing, uh, and the imported beers that were trademarked in Australia. Lots of those were sparkling. It seems to have been the... Uh, the New England IPA of the day. Well, we were just, uh, on a previous episode of the show, we were just debating over the whole notion of cream ale here in the U.S. and whether or not that was a marketing term that meant just more than what modern Americans think is cream ale because it was also called sparkling ale at times uh, in the up, in upstate New York region. So, yeah, that that, that term sparkling ale has seemed to have bounced around uh, uh, just a little bit. Well, I, I, I think it's competitive pressure. Uh, I look very particularly at the Adelaide and South Australian area, Cooper's didn't call their ale sparkling probably until just before World War One. Before that, it was Cooper's ale. So did they pick up on that everybody else had a sparkling ale? And they should as well. We'll never, never particularly know, but 
it does look very coincidental that Battle Vale being sold in that particular market was really called sparkling. It's good to see that marketing marketing will always confuse the picture no matter what we try to do in order to put a clear idea around what actual is happening. Peter, before we uh, before we close out, is there anything else that people should know about the book and about you know, Australian brewing in general? Are you going to do a third book? Well, I'd love to do a third book, but I think the third book is very dependent. Uh, if it's to be on Australian beer, it would be very dependent on getting access to new material so that I could um, particularly interpret uh, Victorian beers. I haven't got much from Queensland. I think there's there's another book there provided I can get access to the material. Somebody get this man access to brewery closets. The archives are, are, are held in the corporate domain, and it really does require the plant manager or whoever's the responsible person to uh, grant me access uh, and let me do my thing. In the meantime, I am working on another book because I have uh, harvested a huge amount of information of breweries in the southern part of the UK, and in particular Cornwall. Uh, I grew up in Cornwall, and I have found the beers that I drank as a lad in archives on the Sonosco Brewery archive, and I think it would be good to capture that, because uh, I've, I've brewed several recreations from that era, and they taste all right to me, so... Perhaps that's that's the one to do while I'm trying to lobby to get and look at some more archives in Australia. There, there you go. That can be your your Proustian beer book. My what? Your Proustian beer book. Your recollections of childhood and things past. Well, things past. I mean, I couldn't possibly comment about underage drinking. That would be highly. <laughs> Peter, uh, remind me real quick. The the book is available on Lulu.com. We'll obviously link to it on the site, but it's one of the printed by uh, printers all around the world for local delivery, so people can uh, order online. That seems to be uh, the feedback that I've had from people around the world. The print on demand uh, is quite a straightforward process. Please look on the uh, Lulu homepage. They quite often will do free shipping or discount codes. So it's well worth doing that. That, that um, can reduce the cost somewhat. I would suggest if you've not read Bond Brew, not jumping straight into Six O'Clock Brew, you probably should read Bond Brew first because I don't repeat a great deal of information from Bond Brew in Six O'Clock Brew. You can apply the recipes from Six O'Clock Brew with the information that's in Bond Brew. It's just the way it's um, involved, if you like. Well, it would be rude not to pick up a pair. Like we said, we will include links to uh, Peter's books so that you can go ahead and you can get both books and start to delve into slightly less modern and slightly more modern versions of Australian beers and understand some of the history. And like I said, I I was really digging looking at like how this stuff changes, you know, how actually being a colony impacts it. And then, yeah, to your point, like what government protection did in order to help boost the industry or do things against the industry. A little bit of economics, a little bit of history. A whole lot of ingredients exploration and really a lot of good beer talk. And a lot of beers that you can brew and from the uh, conversations on the Aussie Home Brewer site, guys are using the Melbourne Ale yeast uh, across a whole range of styles and the Melbourne Ale yeast uh, would be quite applicable to a lot of 
uh, the recipes in, in, in both books. It seems that White Labs have done a good thing. Uh, you will recall it. Our previous um, podcast, I did a shout out saying, oh, please release it. Well, it was released in August and there's now a lot of interest in the performance of that yeast. Yeah, and I was going to say I, I have my I have my copy of it that I've, that I've kept around, and I thought I thought it did a, a bang up job making some very tasty beers. We'll make sure to also include a link to where you can find Melbourne yeast, or at least to the White Lab, so that you can find more information and track it down that way. But yeah, uh, again. If you guys want to dig into sort of some different sorts of beers with a uh, with a kind of a twist to them, but are still very much about a classical drinkability, I would highly recommend digging into the, into Peter's books, uh, both Bronze Brews and the six uh, six o'clock beers. Hey, who knows? Maybe if you get that uh, that Cornish uh, beer book on, we'll we'll get you back to talk about the beers of your youth. Ah, well, then we could um, really delve into some uh, interesting stories or not. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I, I'm sure the statute of limitations has run out by now. Oh, uh, that's, that, that's 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 probably good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Peter. Thanks, Sue. Pleasure as always. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this further exploration of Australian beers with Peter. You can pick up both Bronze Brews and Six O'Clock Brews from his site. We'll include a link in the show notes, or just go to lulu.com and do a search. Are you ready to tackle some sparkling ale? It's no time like the present. So now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum known out there to mankind. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Habitat for Humanity, helping people build their own houses. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.